0: I've never understood how we got from a naked crucified Messiah to our best life now. That That is just not the rhythm of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is about down before up. It, it's about the cross and after that glory. That's the way it was for Jesus. And Peter is saying, that's the way it will be for you. Are you better than the master? Do you deserve better treatment than he received? No, obviously not. So, Arm yourself with the same way of thinking.
1: Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The biblical gospel is about down before up. It's about the cross, and after that, the glory. That was the way for Jesus, and the sooner we adopt a similar set of expectations as modern-day Christians— the better it will be for our work and witness within the culture. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter.
0: Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 Peter chapter 4. I like the title for this section given in the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Chapter 4 in that volume begins with the heading, Exhortation to Firmness in the End Times. That's good. That's exactly what this is. Now, remember, the apostles understood the end times as being the entire period after the ascension of Christ and before his triumphant return. The apostle John, for example, could say, children, it is the last hour. Now, as Peter will remind these people in his next epistle, there is no accounting for the divine sense of time. He says in 2 Peter 3, 8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So God's sense of time is different than our sense of time, but we know it is the last hour because there is nothing left to do in terms of the great acts of our redemption. Jesus has done it all. We are supposed to announce his victory, but there is nothing left to be done that would in any way add to it. So the Lord could return at any time. The only reason he hasn't returned is because of mercy. Peter will say in 2 Peter three nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his... Promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Close so the Lord is delaying his return to give as many people as possible the chance to hear of Christ's victory and to embrace him as their Savior and Lord. The throne of Christ is parked just above the clouds of heaven, ready to descend with a thud to the earth at any time. Therefore, in the time between, which is the last hour or the end times, we need to expect a fair bit of turbulence and resistance. God will shake things up from time to time so as to upend the soil and facilitate our sowing. There will be birth pangs and outbreaks. Expect seasons of great advance and seasons of violent resistance. This is how it goes in the time between and Peter wants his people to be prepared for that. He wants them to be wise And he wants them to be firm. That's what this chapter is all about. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We We are, after all, following a crucified Messiah, Peter reminds them. Therefore, any thoughts of living your best life now ought to be abandoned. I've never understood how we got from a naked crucified Messiah to our best life now. That that is just not the rhythm of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is about down before up. It's about the cross and after that, glory. That's the way it was for Jesus. And Peter is saying, that's the way it will be for you. Are you better than the master? Do you deserve better treatment than he received? No, obviously not. So arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Don't expect your best life now, and you won't be disappointed when you don't get it. Expect to live most of your life on the margins of polite society. You believe, Christian, a bunch of things that regular secular people find distasteful. So don't expect that having a little fishy decal on the back of your car is going to earn you any favors with the police. Don't don't expect that wearing your Jesus t-shirt to the restaurant is going to get you a better table. Christianity is not an inside track to influence and popularity. Why would you think that it is? After all, Jesus was crucified naked on a cross. Arm yourself with the same expectation. Anything short of that? And you are being treated better than you deserve. That's the mindset you need to have as you go about your business in the big, bad world outside. Now, I'll tell you this. As North American Christians lose their grip on power and privilege, we need to recover this basic mindset lest we completely destroy our witness in the culture. There has been more bellyaching and complaining and more hostile, antagonistic rhetoric coming out of Christian churches and Christian pulpits over the last several years than perhaps at any point previous in our history. We are not losing our privilege gracefully, and we need to do better. The past 200 years of more or less unrelenting favor for Christians in the Western world has been an anomaly. We had no right to expect that, and we have no right now to protest the loss of that because we were never promised that. Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourself with the same expectation. How do you get from that to the expectation of perpetual favor in the culture. According to the Bible, Christians should wake up every morning expecting to live at the margins of society. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Close quote. So outside the camp, on the margins of the culture, is exactly what we were told to expect. Being shoved out there, being dragged out there in some cases after 200 years on the inside is traumatic, I grant you. But you need to get over it. We all need to get over it, and we need to get on with it. Besides, Peter says suffering can actually be good for you. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He says that in verse 2. So, a little bit of suffering can serve as a much needed shock to the system. It can break the hold of sin and refocus the church on the mission she was given. Peter further develops that idea in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We don't have time for that kind of thing, Peter says. We have an urgent mission to pursue. And we don't know how much time we have left. Jesus could return tomorrow. And think of how many people in this world have never even heard that he is coming. So put away your silly, childish nonsense and get in the game. Verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Here we have another one of those Peter passages where the main point is fairly obvious, but some of the fine details are extraordinarily hard to figure out. The basic idea here is that the people of the world are going to be surprised and even offended by our failure to go along with all their worldly passions and pursuits. When we don't join the parade, they're going to be very upset. Failure to celebrate is often interpreted as judgment, and nobody likes to be judged. So people are going to turn on you, but don't worry about that, Peter says. Those people are going to have to give an account to God for their actions, as of course will you. So just do what you know God wants you to do. That's the main idea. But what in the world does Peter mean when he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? Now, again, we don't have time to dig too deeply into this, but I'll give you the main options. There are three main options in this case. The first option is to understand Peter as saying that this is why we still preach the gospel even to people who are spiritually dead. You preach to everybody, even if some of those people have dead, unregenerate hearts, and therefore no chance of repenting and believing. You just keep preaching. You preach to everybody. The problem with this option is that Peter never uses the Greek word "nekros" to refer to spiritually dead people. He uses it to refer to actually dead people. So the second option is to understand him as saying that this is why we preach the gospel even to people who heard it, but never actually believed it, and then went on to actually die. That doesn't invalidate our commitment to the mission. We, we, we aren't in charge of the outcome of our preaching, so we're just going to do our job regardless of the outcome. Some people are going to hear us, reject us, and die in their sins. That could be what he means. In fact, plenty of commentaries understand him in that sense. The third option is to understand this as referring to the preaching of Jesus in Sheol. Again, I mentioned in the last episode that all throughout church history, it has been taught and believed that Jesus descended to Sheol, the realm of the dead, and rescued the souls of Old Testament believers and announced his victory to the angels, the fallen spirits there in prison. This is emphatically not a second chance at salvation. We need to understand that. Remember, the word gospel literally means an announcement of victory. So, many people understand Jesus as announcing his victory to the spirits in prison, but emphatically not offering them a chance to repent and be saved. Matthew Emerson says helpfully here, Christians in the first four centuries of the church were careful to clarify that Christ's descent is only liberating for the faithful. They did not affirm a post-mortem second chance for salvation upon Christ's descent, and they explicitly denied that Christ's descent saved all those in Hades quote so it could mean that Jesus went down to release the saints and to announce his victory but it does not imply a second chance at salvation those are the three options but as i said we won't have time to sort through them all in detail here again the main point of the passage thankfully is not in doubt peter is saying that the people in the world aren't going to understand you they're going to be offended They're going to turn on you when you start raining on their parade. But that's not your problem. Those people are going to have to answer to God for how they respond to your message. That's their issue. You just do your job. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You could label this paragraph, Ethics for the End of the World. It's fascinating to see what Peter emphasizes here. He says, first of all, be self-controlled. Don't get sucked in by the sensual temptations or by the pursuit of prosperity. All that stuff is a distraction. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. And above all, love each other earnestly. Don't turn on your brothers and sisters when the world starts putting the pressure on you you're going to need each other. Oh, my friends, the devil has been at work in the evangelical church of late, dividing fellow Christians in advance of the coming storm. He wants us to hate each other. He wants us to mock each other and vilify each other over issues that do not even come close to qualifying as gospel issues. And if he can get us to do it on the internet in front of all the neighbors, so much the better for him. Don't fall for that demonic nonsense. Listen, of course, I understand if people are denying Christ, then obviously we need to separate from them. But let's be honest. Most of the divisions out there right now have nothing to do with the gospel. They have to do with personality, culture, and politics. So let's not allow the devil to use disagreements and differences over those sorts of things to divide and separate brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're going to need each other before this season is over. So love each other earnestly and use your gifts, whether speaking gifts or serving gifts, use whatever you've got for the good of the whole and for the glory of Christ. Thanks be to God.
1: Pastor Paul, I want to pause here for a second because I absolutely love Peter's counsel here, in part because it is the exact opposite of what I think a lot of us would expect. He says in verse seven, the end of all things is at hand. So I'm expecting some follow-up instructions like run for the hills, stock up on canned goods, like load up on toilet paper. Does that ring a bell? Uh, Lock the doors and check your ammo. (laughs) But instead he says, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, keep on loving one another, open your homes to those in need, and use your gifts to serve one another within the body of Christ. That does not sound at all like what we expect. That would not make for an exciting episode of Doomsday Preppers, but that is exactly what Peter says we ought to be doing as we see the day of the Lord
0: approaching. I love that. Yeah, me too. And that's classic Peter, by the way. This is not a one-off. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that the heavens and the earth are going to be cleansed and purified in some kind of cosmic fire. the The heavenly bodies are going to be melting as they burn. And then he says... Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Closed quote. So, Peter says, since you know that the universe is going to end in a giant burst of cosmic fire, be holy and be godly. Be active in mission and at peace. That is, again, 100% not what we would expect. It is absolutely counterintuitive. But it makes sense from Peter's perspective. Yeah. Peter knows that God has the big picture under control. He's on that. So Peter wants his people focused on their piece of the puzzle down at street level. He wants them displaying Christ, growing in love, practicing hospitality, serving one another earnestly, extending the gospel of peace to every man, woman, and child they come in contact with. That's our business. The timing, the geopolitics, the cosmic mechanics of it all, that's, that's God's peace. So we need to make sure that we aren't getting distracted with issues above our pay grade.
1: Yeah, I love that. And to be honest with you, I think that is exactly what the church at this moment desperately needs to hear. Let's jump back
0: into the text now at verse 12. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The right attitude to have in a season like this is joy. You certainly shouldn't be angry. You're still being treated better than Jesus. You certainly shouldn't be shocked because you were told by Jesus that this would happen. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. But there's a catch. You have to make sure that you're suffering for your Christian faith. There are no rewards, no blessings associated with suffering that is of your own making. That doesn't count as persecution. That's just you being a knucklehead. If you're a meddler sticking your nose into things you shouldn't, or sticking your thumbs into eyes you shouldn't, and you face pushback for that, well, that's on you. There's no kingdom value in that. In fact, there may be kingdom harm. So you have to suffer justly. But if you do suffer justly, then don't be ashamed about that, give glory to God. He has saved you and he has approved you under trial. That is the mindset you're going to need for the hour that is coming upon us. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter seems to be referring here to a couple of well-known Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3 most immediately. In Ezekiel 9, God sends an angel to mark off his people in advance of a terrible judgment. Once the remnant is marked or sealed, then the judgment of God begins to fall. And it starts with the household of God. The Lord says to the angel who will deliver the judgment, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary, closed quote. That's Ezekiel 9, 5 to 6. So many people who looked like they were living very close to God are actually the first to experience fatal judgment. Malachi 3, 1 to 4 also clearly lies in the background. There the prophet says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. That's Malachi 3, 1-3. So, the Lord will come suddenly to his house with fire and soap, as it were. He will burn away some and chastise and purify others. Which means, of course, that it might be hard to tell, at least initially, who the Lord is sifting and who the Lord is sanctifying. That will only become clear over time. Verse 19, therefore, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Submit to God's will and providential action. Let the scrub and the scour wash over you. Do your job, do good, and trust that if you are truly saved, if you are his child, then this remedial action by the Father will actually sanctify you and prepare you to shine like the stars at the final judgment. Thanks be to God.
1: Hey, Pastor Paul, you said something near the end there that I want to come back to. You said that sometimes it can be hard to tell who the Lord is sifting and who he is sanctifying. Can you
0: unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Listen, we've tried reasonably hard over the last 50 episodes that we've done together to avoid speaking too directly into any current happenings in the world, mostly just to make sure that these episodes have some shelf life. But I also want to make sure that what we're talking about is useful to people. And and so I don't know how we could not talk about the huge shaking event that we've just come through as a culture. The Lord has been rattling our cage over the last... 16 to 17 months and for some that has been a sifting event and for some that's been a sanctifying event a pastor friend of mine said recently that he believes that the evangelical church will emerge from this pandemic smaller at the edges and stronger at the core i Mm. think that's exactly right this pandemic has sifted some people right out of the church. It was just difficult enough that they stopped coming. It was just scary enough that they leaned on something other than Christ. It was just confusing enough that they went down the rabbit hole of the internet and stopped reading their Bible, right? They were they were at the margins and now they're gone. But for others, this pandemic, this shake on a global scale, has done the exact opposite. It has pressed them further into Christ. It, is, it has made them hungrier for corporate worship. It has made them more aware of their need for accountability and community. It, is, it has made them more grateful for the unchanging Word of God and, and more trusting in God's providence and care. So which one are you? That's the question we all ought to be asking as we emerge from this pandemic. What
1: if this pandemic has knocked me down? What if I'm a listener and COVID really did rattle my boots, so I haven't been to church in 16 months, I haven't been reading my Bible, I did fall down the rabbit hole of the Internet, and I did start listening to other voices out there as opposed to the Holy Spirit. Have I been permanently sifted, or is there a way back for me?
0: Absolutely, there's a way back. Listen, I've said before, I really think this pandemic was a giant dress rehearsal. This wasn't the last big shake. This wasn't the birth pang that produces the baby. But it did move and stretch some things that haven't been moved and stretched for a long time. It was a warning and a wake-up call. So let's use it as such. If it knocked you down, then receive that as a warning about your root system. Maybe this is God telling you that you aren't deep enough. Maybe this is God telling you that it's time to lock it down. Lock yourself in on Christ and lock yourself into a local group of Christ followers. Now is the time. Everything Peter has been saying here is about personal character and corporate belonging. Love one another. Keep on loving and serving one another. We're going to need each other before this thing is over. So it's not too late. It's not too late to get right with Christ and to rejoin the body of Christ through some local fellowship near you. So do that today. Do that this morning. Get out and go to church. Let that be the lesson we take out of this text.
1: Amen, and I'll second that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca, or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then.
0: Your word is a lamp
1: unto my feet.